Hi, dance friends. We're starting this episode with a pop quiz. Last week, a venerated avant-garde American choreographer fashioned a dance for the socially isolated called Passing and Jostling While Being Confined to a Small Apartment. Such a good title. Do you know who it was? Find out at the end of this episode of the Dance Edit podcast. everyone, and welcome to the Dance Edit podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoyne. And I'm Kate Ensenen. We are editors at Dance Magazine and Dance Spirit Magazine. And on this week's podcast, we'll be talking about the latest wave of major coronavirus-related dance cancellations, paying tribute to master teacher Willie Berman, who passed away on Monday, and discussing a new study from the Dance Data Project revealing the persistence of the gender gap in the dance world. Um, But first, as always, a reminder that this podcast is a companion to our daily email newsletter, which is a quick dance news digest about a one minute read that's an especially useful resource right now, I think, when the pace of news is so fast. So be sure to sign up for the Dance Edit newsletter at thedanceedit.com. And now for our first news segment. So we've entered a sort of second wave of COVID-19 related dance world news. There is that first sort of tsunami of announcements about the cancellation of all performances in the immediate future and the temporary shuttering of dance schools. But now as it becomes apparent that this pandemic will be more of a marathon, we're getting additional announcements about cancellations of productions originally scheduled a little farther down the road, um, particularly the summer festivals. And at least one major dance studio has permanently closed now, in part because of the financial fallout of the virus. So two of the, you know, largest but, you know, still unsurprising cancellations that we heard about this week was both New York City Ballet and Houston Ballet canceling their spring seasons. Really, really sad to hear, of course. But what's amazing is that both companies are working to pay their staff through these seasons. New York City Ballet will be paying their dancers, musicians, stagehands, costumers, security, ushers, and administration. And they're expecting to lose $8 million through this season. But, you know, they're really taking that hit for the people that matter the most. Um, And Houston Ballet will also be paying their dancers, staff, and full-time teachers through the end of the fiscal year. And they're expecting to lose between $2.9 million to $4.8 million in revenue this season, which is really devastating to the companies. But I'm just so impressed with their prioritization of their people. Yeah, and I think City Ballet still has most of their summer performances lined up for the moment, at least. They're still planning to go up to Saratoga, so we'll see. Fingers crossed. Um, and a bunch of summer festival cancellations just were just announced, too. Yeah, Monday morning was a rough slew of press releases for us. Uh, so American Dance Festival and Bates Dance Festival both canceled Monday morning. Uh, Jacob's Pillow, for the first time in the festival's history, is canceling this summer. And my feeling now is now that the pillow is canceled, it's probably going to be a domino effect. I think Dominos. we're going to be hearing a lot more. Tough to hear, but again, glad that the decisions are being made. Um, I think there's also various conversations about how the summer intensive offerings can be done online, done remotely, what they can continue to offer the dance community who relies on going to these festivals and congregating there every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, we heard about the the permanent closure of the Lou Conti Dance Studio, which has been around for 46 years, you know, one of the, the places that gave rise to Hubbard Street. Um, it seems like it might not have been in great financial shape before the virus, but that that was kind of the thing that, that put it over the edge. 
Yeah, there's definitely been some rumblings around uh, both the studio and Harvard Street itself just over the last few months. Uh, and, you know, Hubbard Street was kind of one of the first American companies really impacted by the virus. Uh, they were on tour in Europe and had to cut it short and return home. So this, you know, it's a it's a tough loss to hear about. And hopefully on the other side of all of this, something can be done. Mm -hmm. And then the other big announcement or a couple of big announcements happening about postponements um, of award shows. The Tony Awards were postponed indefinitely, which raises a bunch of interesting questions. Also, the Cheetah Rivera Awards, which celebrate dance and choreography specifically, have been indefinitely postponed. Let's talk about the Tony's postponement for a minute. Um, what's going to happen to the, the nomination cutoff now? So curious. Because, I mean, it's literally between the date that Broadway closed, March 12th, and the original deadline for shows for the Tonys, April 23rd, 16 shows were set to open, including six the musical opening the night that Broadway went dark, which is just the worst luck. It's that exact time of the season, that rush when everybody's trying to get in before the deadline normally. Mm -hmm. So so now what will what will the new normal be? Yeah. It's normally when everyone is rushing to the theater to see what they need to see so they can make those nominations. Um, I mean, I'm curious, like, are we looking at a fall Tony Awards? Are we looking at not having the Tony Awards this season and it all getting wrapped up in two? Like, I don't know. I think it will be tough, especially, you know, these Broadway theaters are already suffering economically and the Tony's nominations and wins usually really bolster ticket sales for shows. So if we are looking at a next summer Tony Awards, it's going to be another kind of ding in those budgets. Although the converse of that, because there is the opposite side of a show that's really excellent, doesn't do great at the Tonys and ends up closing sooner than maybe we would like. So maybe we'll end up seeing some of these shows for longer if they do make it. Maybe that's the the rose colored rose colored glasses view. <laughs> Listen, yeah. I have to have optimism right now. Okay, let me have this. <laughs> yeah. Um, speaking of more optimistic takes on this, um, a lot of dance organizations have either been moving their cancel performances online or are offering online alternatives um, after their scheduled shows were canceled or postponed. Um, Ailey in particular launched the Ailey All Access series of you know, free screenings of full-length works. They kicked off with a screening of Revelations, which because was beautiful. what else would they going to start out with? Of course. I mean, we just said this is what we need right now is that work. Like, that's the feeling I think we all need. So thank you, Ailey. And there are also dance classes. There are even some original short films they're putting out. And then Dance Magazine did a, has a, a great sort of continually updated roundup of dance performances that have moved online. Um, what are some highlights from that list? For me, Paris Opera Ballet currently streaming Swan Lake. I mean, is there anything more fantastical, take your mind off of things than just such a ballet classic? Yeah, escape into all that glamour and beauty. Actually, it's kind of a, a, an interesting opportunity to get a better glimpse of some of these international companies that we in the States don't get to see as often. A lot of them are putting offerings online. Yeah, something I'm enjoying is uh, Sadler's Wells uh, had to cancel 12 weeks of programming, uh, Sadler's Wells in London. And uh, so what they're doing is every week they're putting up something new related to what they were supposed to be presenting. And I used to live like really close to there and go there all the time when I was in London. So for me, I'm like, oh, I get to experience the Wells. Yes. <laughs> Even some dance competitions and conventions are now putting on either, you know, Instagram live classes with their faculty or some of them full 
virtual events, which is really, really impressive, just the logistics of that. Um, so things are bleak out there, but the show or some version of it is in many cases still going on, even in the face of, of crisis. Um, and we did want to mention that if you are a dancer in need of help, please check out some of the links that we are including in our episode description, resources that you can turn to. Um, we'll also include some links if you are hoping to advocate on behalf of dancers in need. There are a lot of great organizations doing that kind of work right now. Um, so our second segment is dedicated to Wilhelm Berman, the master ballet teacher known to as many, many devoted students as Willie. He died earlier this week at age 80 after an illness. Um, he was originally from Germany. He danced for Stuttgart Ballet and Frankfurt Ballet and under Balanchine at New York City Ballet. Um, but he was definitely best known for his legendary morning classes at Steps on Broadway in New York City. They're just, they're an institution. He start, was teaching their beginning in 1984. So for more than three decades, it seemed like everybody would show up for, for Willie's classes at Steps from Baryshnikov to Alessandra Ferry to Wendy Whalen to Maria Kurowski. So unsurprisingly, many stars of the ballet world have been paying tribute to Berman over the past few days. Yeah, you mentioned Maria Kurowski, who, of course, is the most senior company member at New York City Ballet. Um, she posted the most beautiful tribute to Willie on her Instagram account. Um, I won't read all of it because it is rather lengthy, but she talked about being a new up-and-coming star, like dancer at New York City Ballet and having these new roles that she didn't know how to handle. And someone told her, go take Willie's class. And, you know, walks in the door, Wendy Whalen and Alessandra Ferry are there. Uh, but um, the way she put it was, his class soon became a safe place for me, somewhere where I was not afraid to try things or struggle because I knew he would help me try to figure it out. Um, and she said she plans to continue doing his bar before every performance like she has been doing for a very long time. And another really amazing quote that I've been kind of stuck on reading a bunch this week was also from Wendy Whalen, who, you know, was famous for taking his class as well, you mentioned. Um, and I thought it was so beautiful. She said, he was a force to be reckoned with, demanding, exacting, intimidating. But there was also his incredible wit, that eternal spark and twinkle in his eye, exuding humor and a depth of care and love for his dancers that was unmatched. Yeah. And speaking of that wit, I kind of, I wanted to read a few Willie Berman gems. Um, these are actually from a, a a teacher's wisdom column from Dance Magazine back more than a decade ago, but some of the, I remember them from when they came out. Um, I think my favorite is, if you don't want to go to, into fifth position, get out of the business, which is just, <laughs> it's just so perfect. Um, he also said, dancers have to be better today. How can any audience nowadays take Swan Lake with someone who's just good? It's a ridiculous story. For it to be acceptable, the dancer has to be totally devoted to the craft, which, yes, could not could not be more true. Um, and I, I wanted to conclude our little tribute section by um, talking about this illustration that um, illustrator Andrea Selby posted. It's a sketch that she drew of a dancer who looks a lot like Wendy. Um, doing a, a beautiful développé and Willie standing behind her, reaching his arm as if he's completing the line of her leg with it. Um, and the caption is, is Willie saying, always think somewhere way over there. Um, so now we're all thinking way over there where you are, Willie. You'll be, you'll be sorely missed. Um, so now on to our third segment, we wanted to talk about a new study that the Dance Data Project released on Tuesday, which not coincidentally was Equal Pay Day. 
Um, the study shows the persistence of gender inequity in prestigious ballet companies, especially in leadership roles. Um, so the study looked at the 50 largest ballet companies by budget in the United States, and it found that in 2018, female artistic directors earned only 63 cents for every dollar men earned in the artistic director position, which that's compared to the 79 cents on the dollar earned by women in the workforce overall. So especially bleak from that perspective. Um, the study also found that women are underrepresented in artistic leadership. They only hold 25% of artistic director positions within those top 50 companies. And if you narrow it to the largest 10 companies, that number drops to 10%, i.e. one, one person out of 10 directors, Lourdes Lopez at Miami City Ballet. So yeah, yipes. You know, Dance Data Project has been doing their thing for a few years now. And every time I think the statistics they turn out are going to get less shocking, and that just has not been the case, whether we're talking about artistic leadership or talking about women getting commissions from ballet companies. Um, although I, you know, I think it's worth noting, like, this topic has been getting a lot more coverage over the last few years. It's become so much more a topic of conversation. Um, so... I don't know. I guess keep fighting the good fight. Thanks, Dance Data Project, for like giving us concrete numbers so that we can actually make the argument. Like, no, we have statistics to back this up. It's not us just imagining it. Right. We can talk about the problem in an informed way, which is the first baby step towards solving it. Um, but clearly still a long way to go. Um, so for our last segment this week, we wanted to take a little throwback Thursday walk down dance memory lane. Um, we're going to talk about a dance artist who is so iconic, he's known by a single name. Um, that would be Luigi, who's one of the fathers of jazz dance. Um, and we're talking about him this week because he died five years ago on Tuesday. Um, so Luigi created what became a foundational jazz technique, including his famous warm-up routine. And if you've studied jazz in the United States in the past 50-odd years, you've probably done some version of this warm-up. Um, and the story of how he developed that technique is really extraordinary. Yeah, so uh, the jazz master, known as Luigi, uh, was born in 1925, uh, started dance classes at the age of 10, pretty typical story. Um, World War II happens, he served in the U.S. Navy, was seeing active combat, came through that, um, and then two months to the day after his discharge in 1946, he was involved in a really severe car accident uh, that left him comatose for nearly a month and then partially paralyzed um, at the age of 21. Uh, so there were fears from his doctors that he would never walk again, and he spent the next two years doing surgery and therapy and all these other things. Uh, and three years after his accident, he actually performed as a dancer in his first Hollywood film, uh, largely due to not only his personal perseverance, but the help of some extraordinary teachers uh, who worked one-on-one -on -one of him. Uh, and ended up doing a lot more Hollywood films, working as a dancer extra. Uh, fun fact, the reason he's known by Luigi uh, is that his second Hollywood film was On the Town, and none other than Gene Kelly gave him the nickname while they were filming, and I guess you could say it stuck? Which I suppose if Gene Kelly gives you a nickname and you're a young dancer, you're going to hold on to it, right? Run with that, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
But that experience of working with his teachers to just completely rebuild his technique from the ground up and then working on film sets kind of as a dancer and as an assistant choreographer and helping the dancers he was working with warm up led to him developing this technique that, as Margaret said, if you've done jazz dance in America in the last 50 years, you've done some aspect of Luigi technique. Um, And he's just an absolutely incredible teacher and there are so many gems of quotes uh, in the Dance Magazine archives from him, but I think probably my personal favorite, in the April 1962 issue, he said, before you can dance, you must know how to love, how to give. And I think that is, it's just so Luigi and so heartwarming and perfect. And it's wild that he had the career that he had, considering it almost never happened. Such an icon and one that people should know more about. It's interesting because I feel like a lot of people know Ohad Naharin's story about developing Gaga out of his own injury experience, how that was sort of his rehabilitative effort. But Luigi is the original version of that story. More people should be talking about him. That's so yeah, extraordinary. And he, and he spent almost his entire career teaching and developing himself as a teacher. Such a valuable part of jazz history. Um, so before we sign off, here is the answer to our pop quiz from the top of the episode. Last week, a renowned American choreographer fashioned a dance for the socially isolated called Passing and Jostling While Being Confined to a Small Apartment. Just <laughs> the best, the best title. Uh, last minute hint, by the way, she, it's a she, was a fixture of the Judson Dance Theater scene and the Grand Union. Um, so who is it? Yvonne Rayner, the one and only. Who else, honestly? <laughs> Who else would, would give us that gem of a title? <laughs> um, I'm personally kind of obsessed with what I will be dubbing this like dance challenge. She adapted her 1963 work Terrain. It famously included, you know, kind of demonstrations of everyday tasks and activities. And as related to this dance challenge, a lot of walking. So essentially what you're supposed to do is you and a partner, if you're quarantining with someone or a dog, you know, get together with them. And the main stay of the entire exercise is maintaining a steady walking rhythm. So you can either be walking to that rhythm or standing. And as you walk close to your partner that is passing, you can either, you know, walk just past them or lightly bump them, the jostling, which kind of frees the person standing to get back into motion. Super fun. Highly recommend. I did it with my mom. She's not a dancer, but she enjoyed it. (laughs) I have a question. Do we know if there's ever been a Judson Dance Theater score that did call for a dog to be involved? Do do we know this? I now want to find out. There was just really great videos of Yvonne Rayner and her (laughs) cutest little dog in the article about this dance challenge performance. And I was dying over them. It's a New York Times article. Please, please go look it up. (laughs) It's amazing. Um, Great. Well, Thank you, everyone, for joining us this week. We'll be back next week for more discussion of all the news that's moving the dance world. And be sure to sign up for the Daily Dance Edit newsletter at thedanceedit.com and also to follow us on Twitter at dance underscore edit for live up-to-the-minute updates on the coronavirus's impact on the dance world. Um, Keep dancing, everyone. Bye. Bye, everyone. Stay safe.
The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those football sounds. Find out more about the Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.